Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 728. Uh, fun, comfortable dates coming up in Texas and Buffalo and Toronto. Uh, also Boise and Salt Lake City and Los Angeles. Uh, and a few more. Go to FunComfortableTour.com for tickets and info. I also want to let you know, at midnight, starting uh, the 8th of September, that'll be tomorrow, is all new. We're back in the studio after a two-week break. And uh, we're going to be at 11 o'clock, so 11 p.m. now instead of midnight, just for three weeks, uh, just before Trevor takes over the Daily Show. We're just uh, filling in, the, we're just grouting the gaps between uh, Daily Shows at the moment, but uh, pretty fun. We have a lot of great stuff planned, and then in a few weeks, we're doing a bunches of Funches weeks, so one week where Ron Funches competes every day uh, in a couple of weeks, so uh, that'll, be, that'll be great. Also on the Nerds Community Corkboard, uh, Andy writes... I'm a PhD student and a stand comedian. I have a website where I blog about fun and interesting studies in social psychology. It's called Social Psych Online. You can find it at socialpsychonline.com. I've written articles on the psychology of persuasion, how people think about themselves, the psychological nature of social issues, and more. If you're interested in figuring out other people and knowing your own mind better, you, uh, you'll find frequently updated material that's true to the scientific research, but also fun and easy to understand. All right. Uh, well done, Andy, Social Psych Online. And then this one is from a listener who didn't write their name. We got a rad event coming up in Philadelphia, October 5th and 6th, 2015, called Death Salon Mütter Museum. It's our fifth Death Salon, and this one is being held in the most amazing medical oddities museum in the world, the Mütter Museum. I can attest to this. It's in Philadelphia, and it's incredible. Uh, I will go to the Mütter Museum every time I'm in Philadelphia. It's awesome. Even if you don't go for this event, you should still go visit the Mütter Museum. Anyway, we get together the best academics, artists, authors, uh, death workers in one place and have them nerd out about their projects and art for a general audience to enjoy. This is our first East Coast event. Lineup's pretty incredible. Uh, plus, we'll have the Dark Artisans Bazaar, which is an entire ha- hall full of local artisans whose creations use death as inspiration. The full events and lineup can be found at deathsalon.org. Uh, well done for that. And finally, this is an adorable Nerdist Community Corkboard from Matt Curtis and Amanda Lynn. My wife and I would like to announce that on Sunday, August 6th at 8 p.m., our daughter Eliza Jean Curtis was born. Hooray! I'm clapping with one hand on my leg. Uh, we'd like to thank you for the countless hours of entertainment Nerdist Network has provided, especially at Christmas. We spent our first wedding anniversary singing performing in NYC, but since our daughter was conceived during an episode of our favorite show at midnight, you're welcome. Uh, we look forward to raising our first daughter the Nerdist way. Well done. Congratulations, Matt, Amanda, and Eliza. If you want your thing included, uh, you can send it to events at Nerdist.com for that. This episode is John Taffer. Promoting Bar Rescue, new episode Sunday nights on Spike. John was fucking awesome. Oh my god, you know, Matt Meyer has been going off on Bar Rescue for a long time, and he and one of our at midnight writers, Jordan Morris, who you may also know from uh, uh, Jordan Jesse Go uh, with Jesse Thorne, uh, they were on an episode of Bar Rescue. It's one of Matt's favorite shows, and so he was like, We gotta get John Taffer. And I was like, Okay, let's get him on. And John was the goods. Dude is rad. So uh, watch Bar Rescue. Follow John Taffer on Twitter. It's J-O-N-T-A-F-F-E-R. Uh, watch Bar Rescue, and uh, and I know you will enjoy this podcast. Which, by the way, here's another podcast number 728 with John Taffer in Podcast Rescue. Now entering Nerdist.com. I should have. <laughs> Quick, it's not too late. No. Lock the door. I'm selling exit tickets. So. <laughs> yeah, approach motel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're not supposed to be able to check out, but I'm going to let you check out for a small fee. Are we all, are we all good? We're recording? We're good. good. This, is, uh, this is a big treat for me. I know. Chris. Now, I uh, over the Christmas holidays, uh, I watched a marathon of your show, and knowing that Matt... Mm-hmm. Watches uh, a lot. There are there are a lot of shows, and I know what shows Matt loves. And I go, "Have you seen this show, Bar Rescue?" And he's like, "I fucking love that." <laughs> John Taver's a genius. Oh my god, I just want to be on that show so bad. And then he ended up it getting happened. to be to be on the show, and he got to do an episode for the first ever haunted bar. What? Yeah, yeah. it's how uh, haunted was the bar? Listen, Matt? when it comes out, you all are gonna. It's gonna be the. 
It's gonna rise to the top of the of the bar rescue episode. It's gonna. Are you gonna bar pass, rescuing bar rescue? It's gonna pass. <laughs> it's gonna pass the pirates. It's gonna go up, up, up. It's it's gonna be the best because it think, combines all the things you love about reality television: now, ghosts wh- and bars. While Matt was gushing about you, I think words like the real deal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's been in it. The man knows what he's talking about. He's not fucking around. Like it was very. That's the. That's the. That's yeah. I'm very. I'm passionate about Bar Rescue. When did you first discover Bar Rescue, Matthew? I think when it premiered. I was. I was just way on board because I'm a fan of the. Uh, the reality show ilk where uh, someone is doing something shittily. And someone who knows what they're doing. Let's face it, Matt. You yeah. like watching people get embarrassed. Yes. I mean, let's understand yes. what's going on here. Yes, John. You love yes. it when I abuse them. Yes. And that's what you love. You love to wow. see people mutilated, weakened, destroyed. You're an asshole. Let's yeah. face it. Yay. Wow. Let's put it out there, right? Yeah. You've, you've already rescued our show. Yeah. Holy shit. Unbelievable. Oh, my that God. That was amazing. Is- I fucking know this guy for years. I never thought, never realized that. But I nailed it, didn't you? I nailed it fucking on the he's, head. That's why he's good. He gets it. Behind that smiling exterior. <laughs> yes. He's a fucking devil. I'm telling you. Yes. He's the worst. He's the worst. So how would you rescue Matt? He's the if, Matt worst. Was, if Matt was an episode of Bar Rescue, what would you do to him? You know, Matt <laughs> might be a walkout, but you know. <laughs> Taffer walks. Hashtag Taffer walks. You know, pocket protector might help. We talked about that earlier. <laughs> going in there. <laughs> oh fucking God. shave for a change. Maybe that would. Oh, no, 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 we all listen, have that same. Listen. If he wore more than six dollars worth of clothes, that might go a long way. <laughs> you know why? He's too busy buying uh, collector guitars. Matt. Well, you know, oh. I have a collection. It's uh, good to go. This is from Brooklyn. I have this is a quality. A, uh, Jimi Hendrix guitar at home that I bought in 1980 when I was running a troubadour from Buddy Miles. Wait, holy what? shit. That's a true fuck? story. And Buddy Miles got in drug trouble. And when Hendrix died, he inherited, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, about 28 of his guitars from the Manhattan apartment. Uh-huh. And he got in drug trouble. I was running a troubadour at the time. It was a thing of timing, and I wound up with that guitar, and it's sitting in my office at home holy right now. Holy shit. shit. Is it signed or anything? Or you just, no, no, it's but I have a photograph of him in it, and I have a letter of authenticity from Buddy Miles, and the serial number tracks back to his estate. So it's That's it's unbelievable. Unreal. Sometimes drugs do pay off when you get yeah. to get guitars. People around. Yes, if you're on the other side of the fence, it can pay <laughs> off really well. Yes. So, so how long? Go, go wait, hang on. What is it, like a 68 Strat? No, that's what's amazing about it. Uh-huh. It's a Swedish guitar, a Hagstrom. Oh, I know Hagstrom. And it's a hollow sure. body guitar. It's a yeah. 1957, and I'm told that's the guitar that he used in the song Blue House. Wow, that's fucking awesome. Which was a different kind of sound for him, mm-hmm. you know. That's he normally awesome. played a strat, but yeah, he did yeah. not play a strat in that. But I don't know that to be a fact. That's that's what I was told. What years did you? What years were you running a troubadour? I ran a troubadour uh, uh, in the early eighties. Yeah, you know. So when I ran a troubadour, it was the Dead Kennedy days, Black Flag, oh, no Adamant. Fear. Holy shit. You know, those are all the bands back in those days. Everybody's pogoing, swinging fucking chains on the floor, <laughs> you know, menage pits. I mean, that, that was all the, the stuff that was going on when I ran That's amazing. Back in those days. But also, the knack. I mean, you want to talk about conflicting. Yeah. Yep. You know, Black Flag and the knack oh my popped God. back then. My Sharona. Yeah. Pop band. They were a troubadour band. So, you Shit. know, they really popped out of the troubadour at the time. So, you know, the, the, the new age rock thing was going on, and at the same time, the punk thing was going on. It, it was sort of interesting. Wow. That's, That's pretty incredible. incredible. See? I mean, he knows yeah. what he's doing. Did you start at the troubadour, or where did where, where, where? No, actually, I was a musician when I came to California. I played the drums, and, and, and you know, I was gigging in various bands, and I played in a troubadour, and I developed a friendship with Doug Weston. And one day he just threw the, he threw the fucking key ring at me. So, <laughs> and I picked up the key ring and started running a troubadour. And I remember when I ran a troubadour that that I had to uh, we were behind on our bills. Right, Doug used a lot of the proceeds for recreational purposes oh, sure, back then. Sure, And rest in peace, Doug. Uh, 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 but but uh, uh, um, I used to leave the money in a safe in the floor every night so I could get my liquor delivery in the morning, right? Because I had to pay yeah. cash or I wouldn't get booze. And Doug would sneak in every night and take the fucking money. So I'd come in in the morning and there'd be no money. And that's, that's how I started writing the Troubadour and trying to turn it around. How did you write the Troubadour? Uh, uh, you know, I write the Troubadour. It was the first time I ever did anything like that. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. But... I was the first person who ever ran a troubadour that had the balls to say no to somebody. No, you can't eat that fucking steak if you don't pay for it. No, you can't take that bottle of Cuervo home. No, you can't. So, this you guy's know, no fun. Doug Weston yeah, let his yeah, shit on yeah. the floor. Fuck this. I don't want to work for this guy. But, but you know, it, it was just a couple of things like that. And then I coordinated at the time the 25th anniversary. 
And we got a lot of people to come back. So at the time, you know, a lot of the original people who started years earlier, like the Jackson Browns mm-hmm. of the world, yeah. and Ryan, I remember Carlin came back and did a night for us Holy shit. for the 25th anniversary. And, and, you know, that gave us a jolt of cash that got us over the hump. But when I took over the Troubadour, there were about two inches of water on the floor in the kitchen because we had plumbing issues. Wow. And we didn't have the money to fix it. So I got a bunch of pallets and I threw them on the floor and we walked over the water. <laughs> it was like a wooden bridge system yeah. that went through the kitchen. But we did what we had to do That's to make smart. it. smart. Oh, my God. Uh, so I did, uh, and then after three bands a day, I so burned down on it. I went down the street to Barney's Beanery <laughs> and worked at Barney's Beanery for a couple of years. And then uh, I moved on. Did you did you turn that place around, too? Well, Barney's Beanery has always been successful. I mean, yeah. Barney's Beanery has been here yeah. since 1920. But, you know, I, I remember the great days of Barney's Beanery. I mean... Real celebrities were there, and ashtrays with white powder were passing up and down the bar. (laughs) It was a very different time then, you know. But Barney's was a scene, man. Oh wow! I mean, I just uh, I thinking about what Los Angeles and the Sunset Strip would have been like in the seventies and the eighties. It almost terrifies me. Like it almost feels. Like, how did everyone not die? Like, you know, it's just like... It's it's, amazing. It's just snowing cocaine and people, you know... I mean, it just feels like... uh if you, you, you not only turned a bunch of places around, you, you survived a cultural war zone in a way. And you fucked all day long. <laughs> <laughs> Back in those days, it was a whole different thing. Well, sure, because of all the drugs and stuff yeah. you're able to... Absolutely. But that, those are interesting days. You know, it's funny. I was talking to Matt earlier, and I haven't remembered this story for a long time. But the strangest thing that ever happened to me in a bar happened in a troubadour. i got to tell this story. Please. I don't think I've ever told this story please, before. Please, please. In the late 70s, early 80s, there was a football game where the Washington Redskins beat the Dallas Cowboys in the last 30 seconds or so of a game would have put them either in the playoffs or the Super Bowl. I can't remember. This particular day, Doug Weston gave the club to the American Indians. Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So we had about 800 Indians in the Troubadour. We had Indian comics, Indian drummers, Indian dancers, Indian art, Indian fashion. It was really cool. The football game had ended about 30 minutes before this moment. And a good friend of mine who was an attorney for an agency here in town walks through the front door of the Troubadour expecting the normal rock and roll crowd and screams at the top of his lungs, those Fucking Redskins. I looked up, and from 20 feet away, he said it a second time, those fucking Redskins. And they broke his collarbone. Sure. Well, of course. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Once the misunderstanding was understood, everybody signed his body cast. (laughs) His shoulder cast a few days later. But, you know, when people say to me, what was the most bizarre thing? I mean, that was a bizarre moment. That is almost... If I saw that on a sitcom, I'd be like, come on. It's like something out of, like, an airplane. But you can't write something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Wow. But the Troubadour was some crazy days, man. Still there, too. It's Troubadour still, still there. Still there. I'm guessing it's got to be 60 years old. No, I saw I saw a show there two weeks ago. I saw the Dead Milkman play. Probably still a great around. venue, right? Yeah, great. It's one of my favorite venues. Yeah. Not a bad spot to stand. No. It's like you can see the stage wherever you are. Yeah, the balcony's cool. Great. Audio's Balcony. great. Yeah. yeah. It's just a fan. I've been going to shows there since I moved Just intimate here. enough. Yeah, it's just a perfect. I feel like Steve now. Martin maybe did one of his albums at the Troubadour. He did especially did one of his, his one, one of the specials special, at the Troubadour. Yeah, right. I think right. uh, uh, Hall and Oates just did one there recently. There's been a bunch of them shot at the Troubadour over the years. It was a great venue. So what mm-hmm. brought you out? Like so after the Beanery, did you go? Well, fuck Los Angeles. I'm going to Vegas. No, actually, I didn't wind up in Vegas till years later. Man. Oh, wow. I, I uh, wound up on the East Coast, uh-huh. and I was doing venues on the East Coast. I opened Pulsations mm-hmm. uh, after that, and Pulsations uh, uh, for Leon Altimos was a nightclub outside of Philadelphia that had a four-and-a-half-ton spaceship that flew into the room <laughs> and deposited a $400,000 robot in the dance floor, and our robot... <laughs> Our robot. This is a real thing. <laughs> and our robot was in Rocky Four. Oh, oh shit. yeah, that's how the robot he has. Pulsar. Yeah. And, and you know that, in my view, is the greatest nightclub you know I've ever been involved in. When we opened that nightclub and that spaceship came out and the doors opened and the fog billowed out and this alien robot came out of the spaceship, four thousand people were standing there with their mouths hanging open. And it was like a fucking religious experience. <laughs> and I looked at the robot operator who was standing next to me and my tech guys who were all standing around me because everything was remote controlled. Yeah. And we all had tears going down our faces. <laughs> it was amazing to see. And it was my greatest. 
greatest nightclub moment in all my years of doing this and all the venues I've worked, I saw technology create almost a religious moment. It was so fucking powerful and overwhelming. And that was Pulsations. And uh, when we opened Pulsations, even in today's terms, this is astronomical. We did six hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars our first week. Open. Jesus Christ! Holy shit! And we did that in about nineteen eighty-three. Oh my and god! And the sad thing about pulsations is, opening night, a light fixture fell off the ceiling, and uh, killed somebody and wow. injured a few others. Oh shit! So uh, uh, you know that I learned a lot of lessons from that. I learned a lot about nightclubs, and I learned that from the rest of my life, I put five cables on everything that hung in the yeah, ceiling. Yeah. Sure, but you know, contractors, you know, weren't inspected by the cities, and and uh, obviously, I had nothing to do with it. It was all contractors and inspectors, but uh, it showed me how much responsibility means in a bar. Sure, not only with regard to what you serve people and yeah. what you give them, but the things that you hang over them. Right, you know, slippery floors, unlit staircases. Yeah, I learned yeah. about all of these things young, and you know, the greatest responsibility that I have when you walk into a place of mine is to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. Period. And there's no responsibility greater than that. And you know, even a troubadour taught me that. I mean, it's it's just having a musician's background and then immediately flipping that and having the most responsible job in a club. Did you feel any sense of, oh, I really, ah, I wanted to be a drummer. I don't know. I mean, like, at what point did you feel like, ah, fuck, I'm a grown-up now and I got a grown-up's yeah. job? Being a drummer's great, don't get me wrong. But being a boss ain't bad either. I guess that's not bad. <laughs> yeah. My fucking world. You know? yeah. Welcome to it. <laughs> yeah. From, from being in bands, though, and like playing different venues, did you already kind of have a thing? It's like, you know, this would be so much better if this was like this. Like, did well, you already... I, yeah, that's an amazing question because I own the only patent ever issued by the federal government for the managing of music to achieve a desired ambiance in a hospitality property. And that comes from my troubadour days. I learned very young that if I took 10 songs and change the order of those songs, I could affect an entirely new experience. Sure. And you higher, and you lower, peak you at a different level. I learned that if beats per minute were too low, too long, you get bored and leave. If they're too high, too long, you get fried and leave. I learned the proper ratios of curves. I learned all of the music mix elements, yeah. how much distorted guitar versus keyboard versus male <laughs> versus female. I even learned that if there's gang members in a bar, mm-hmm. I can eradicate them in three weeks musically. Every third <laughs> song is a female vocalist. What? Oh, wow. And they are gone in three to four weeks. That's crazy. So, music defines everything. How do you, you don't go to a out? bar that's because I'm a fucking nutcase. <laughs> you don't go to a bar that isn't cool. That's right. So how do I define that? Well, you know, I can make a dive bar that has an yeah. uncool interior really hip with music. Right. Mm-hmm. So music is important. So those days in the Troubadour taught me so much about energy. Yeah, yeah. And watching these bands and the science of keeping you longer. Yeah. Through beats per minute and music mitts and left turns and things that we call the weave. Which were different approaches to defining music, and, yeah. and I'm a fucking nutcase, man. And, and oh. as a and, a and as a and as a customer, as a consumer, you should probably never notice those things, right? You just you just experience it, and for whatever reason, you go, "Oh, really, this place is really cool. We should yeah. come back here." Without yeah. going, every third song is the, like you should you should never you know. should not notice the code. Yeah, what I call set your watch. Well, it's twelve oh two. They're playing such and such a song. No, you can't do that. So the challenge is to do it differently every night. Right, and to really make it organic and make it flow almost like an organism yeah. that's driving the room. But my job is to make you dance more than you normally would, talk to more people than you normally would, have more fun than you normally would. My job is to make a guy like Matt, who's inherently boring, <laughs> and make him have a good time today. That's my job. You can't make him have a good time, John. It's impossible. <laughs> Can you explain a little bit of the science behind velvet roping to me? Because I feel like I've seen so many clubs where it's like, you just put that up so people think they should get in. Then you get inside, there's no one in the club. Exactly right. If I set up the plants outside and the red carpet and the stanchions and the whole thing, what's the subliminal message sent? Oh, Oh. they're getting ready for a big crowd tonight. If I don't do that, I got no chance at anyone. So, and then the, the, the trick is, now I'm going to hold 20 people in front. How about that? You're standing on line for 15 minutes, and you walk in, and there's nobody fucking there. So now you're really pissed, because you know what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, and, and Vegas in particular, Vegas, if, if, you are, if you have an establishment like this, I can't think of a better place that you would want to be, because people, I mean, like, I, I've been to, you know, I'm not a nightclub person, but I've been a couple times to, you know, like, Taos or whatever. Yep. Tau. 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 Yeah. Taos is in New Mexico, sorry. Uh, but but the idea that people just go, oh, it's Vegas, I'm on vacation, I'll spend $300 on bottle service. Fantasy land. Yeah, and it's not a big deal. Like, yeah. anywhere else in the country, is there anywhere else co- no. comparable to that? Nothing. Listen to this. Uh, I do the uh, top 100 when I ran the nightclub and bar convention. And the number one grossing nightclub in the world 
is excess in win. Oh yeah, hundred and ten million dollars a year, one venue. Yeah, I've been number, in that place before. It's got the dancing poles, and they bring in the beautiful. DJs. Oh and the, yeah, and then Hakkasan is number two at a hundred and four fucking million dollars. Jesus and Christ! And Marquee is three at about eighty-five. Because they get you for like fifty-dollar cover charges, yeah. right? And yeah. the drinks are expensive. You and pay twenty-five hundred for a bottle of vodka. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because like, I guess when you look at the numbers, you're like, well, yeah, of course it's hundred million dollars a year. <laughs> I mean, you can walk but out to the lobby that and get that much cheaper. But in Vegas, you're going to cut yeah. loose. Yeah. You know, you go to Vegas, you're going to have a good time. Yeah. You're going to spend more, do more, drink more, eat more, party yeah. more. And that's what Vegas is. You should. You yeah. go in there for that reason. I mean, that's right, what guys. Vegas is all yeah. about. So how you get crazy. married in Vegas in yeah. October? Yeah, I know. So, you know, I got to give him a hell of a night before. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Where's Matt? Matt's dead. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. He's under something called the Taffer table. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the... What, what is it about these specific... Like, like how does a place catch buzz and, and hold on to an audience before... At what point does it have to... Um, you know, uh, evolve and you know become a new place under the same management. Because I, I was, you know, I knew uh, 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 what's his name, Brent uh, Boldhouse. When I was first starting out, Brent runs uh, one of the big. Uh, I don't know. The, the big what venues. He run? what, what, he, run, he runs one of the big uh, promotion companies in town. Boldhouse. Oh, so but name. but they but they no but they they were acquired or he took over the one that runs uh, the sushi place on Sunset and Vine. Oh, oh, Kabuki? Stark, Stark oh, yes. Sorry. I think he runs Stark. So he's a promoter. He fills the rooms He's a promoter. He fills the rooms. And, you know, there, there always seemed to be that, uh, like, okay, this place is cool for a little while, and now it's a whole different place, but it's secretly the same owner. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how do you know when to do that, when to cut loose, when to, how, how you build the buzz? Well, you know, it, it, it's, A, you got to track your trends. There are certain things that are key. 20% of the people in a building at any given time should be new customers, never there before. Mm-hmm. If it's less than 20%, you're going to be empty in three months. Wow. Because people get bored, they move on. You have to keep infusing 20% new bodies every week. So when we go in, we do market research, we determine that we have to have about 20% new people, 80% repeats. If I have more than 20% new people, then I have an issue. I don't have enough repeats. So uh, if I'm not 80% people who have been here before, the bar sucks. Something ain't right. I'm right. not getting them back. So I have to assess the music, the service, the pricing, the environment. I have to determine everything to get back to that 80% frequency factor, if you will. Wow. If, if I'm at 90% frequency and I don't have new customers and I got a marketing issue, I got to infuse new faces. You're not going to go to a bar if the same girls are there every week right. and there's no new ones. Yeah. Well, not you. Maybe well, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine, John. It's fine. But, but he's getting married. He can't do that. So, yeah. So, so, so all of these little sciences play big time into it, Chris, and, and, and it's those little subtleties that keep it vibrant. And I ask you a question. Have you ever seen a bar with 200 women and it go broke? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a big part of it as well. So, you know, I got to look at that brand vibrancy, the messaging that we send out, you know, mm-hmm. curiosity. I got to feed your ego when you come in in some way because you're not going to go to a bar that you think is unimportant because that makes you unimportant. Right. You're not going to sit in a seat that's unimportant that makes you unimportant. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to stand in a part of the room that's unimportant that makes you unimportant. Yeah. You're not going to listen to unimportant music either. Right. So, my job is to make every part of it seem important. And that's where you get your own personal relevancy from it. And it's completely manipulative. Yeah, so this is playing with people's vanity, pretty much. Oh, no question about it. That's yeah. what I do every day long. My job is, is to make you handsomer, sexier, smarter, funnier. You're all those things yeah, when yeah. you come to my place. Right. So then how did you get involved with Bar Rescue? And at what point was this your idea? Or did someone come to you and go, John, you got to let's make a show about this shit. It's actually you're, a little you're, about you're a weird numbers freak. <laughs> yes. Actually, somebody heard me give a speech at a convention and said, you got to be on fucking TV, man. <laughs> so, so I wrote up about a four paragraph treatment for a show that was originally called On the Rocks. Mm-hmm. And I came out to L.A. and I pitched it to three companies. And I was, oh, let me tell I meet with a friend of mine who at the time ran a television for Paramount and said to me, I said to him, I want to do this show. He looks at me and goes, you will never fucking be on television. <laughs> he says, you're too fucking old, man. You'll never be. You've got to be like 25 years old to do this shit. As soon as he said that to me, there was no fucking way in the world I wasn't going to do this show. Yeah. Right. So I turned every stone. I wrote this up, and then I went and I did a sizzle reel. And I shot it in Mimosa Beach, pretty much three minutes of me screaming and yelling at people. <laughs> <laughs> Brought the sizzle reel to three companies. I got three offers. Oh, my gosh. Uh, literally in days, Chris. Uh, uh, so now I did my background checks on the three companies, and I picked Three Ball Entertainment. It actually I know was, Three Ball. Yeah. And it wasn't the best deal, 
but it was the best company. Right. Yeah. Now, when I did my homework on Todd Nelson and J.D. Roth and all the people there and the work that they did and the show that they did in the production teams, I just said, that's the right company for me. So I signed with Three Ball. Uh, uh, four days after I signed with Three Ball, Spike picked up the show. Four fucking days. Wow. wow. So from the time I wrote up the first piece of paper mm-hmm. to the time the series premiered was less than a year. Wow. Which oh, is, I'm great. told, is, is a, unbelievable timing. Did yeah. you uh, yeah. send but a piece the show of... went through four names. So on the rocks. Bars on the brink. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bar rehab. Okay. And then bar rescue. <laughs> I like on the rocks. On the oh, rocks. Yeah. wedding like when, when we when we passed oh, it at yeah. marriage on the rocks. It didn't oh. quite say. Oh yeah. Message. Yeah. I mean, you're you're basically talking to the guy that sees the Matrix code behind everything, and yeah. so <laughs> probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. probably was like, "Fuck it, bar rescue." Tells you exactly what that the show was is. The Food Network knockoff was called On the Rocks. Which we got a kick out of because we rejected the name and candidly, I rejected the show. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, to be honest with you, so your friend, at, your friend at Paramount, you obviously sent him a piece of shit in a box with a bow around it, right? Uh, actually, I sent him a, a box of black roses was actually, I believe, what oh, I that's, that's a joke. That's a joke. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. That's of course. amazing. <laughs> so there's something specifically about your personality that someone says you can't do this, and you go, "Oh, okay, uh, I I will I will do this now." Yeah. yeah. And where do you think that comes from? My mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's all Freudian in some way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean my mother was a freaking ballbuster. Yeah. And, and you know I'm a ballbuster, and, and you know uh, uh, she didn't tolerate anything other than you know excellence. You know my family was was successful where I grew up. You know my grandfather, my uncle, my father were all very successful, and there was no question that I had to be. Right. Period. End of discussion. Mm. So, uh, so you uh, went into music. <laughs> I said, fuck you to all of them. Yeah. Picked up a drumstick and went to Hollywood. That's what I did. Not just music, a drum. Yeah. yeah. And then well, I wound up being a corporate. Business guy in the end, anyway. You know, but uh, but being but just striving for excellence doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be insightful. I mean, that's a whole other. No, that that's uh, 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 you know that's a little deep, and and I talk about it in my book, uh, raised the bar a little bit. You know, uh, uh, when you really get down to it, my mother was tough with a ridiculous temper. Mm-hmm. So if I didn't manage her reactions, there were consequences. Mm. Of course. So when the veins popped up on the throat, I suddenly had to be humorous. You understood. I had to be cute. So I own the term reaction management. I own it. That's a genius term. And it's a principle in my book. And the principle is if you can manage the reactions of those around you, you'll be a fucking millionaire. (laughs) You'll have whatever you want in life. So at a young age, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I learned to manage subliminally. It wasn't conscious. The reactions of her. Mm -hmm. As a survival mechanism. As a survival mechanism, you bet. And before I knew it, when I was 15, 16 years old, if I was talking to you and let's say you crossed your arms, I'll change in the middle of a sentence because I know I lost you. Right. I just have learned body language and I've learned how people react and what they do. So I have this way of shifting to manage your reactions to me every moment. And you saw it during Bar Rescue. And, you know, it's this intuitiveness that I think I learned, as you said, in the survival mode when I was young. Now it's completely subliminal. And when I talk to somebody and I sense they're disconnecting, again, I'll change topics mid-sentence. I'll come in on you. I'll change my voice tone. I'll change my voice tone. You know, I'll work it. Because your reactions to what I'm saying are paramount to me. Sure, and most people don't. I mean, there is a there is a whole science now, a whole field of study behind micro reactions, where they where they they will break down. And and if it's not something that you understand, and you might go, oh, that guy's smiling. They go, no, no, he's baring his teeth. That's right. Which is a very which very means, different. Which which means that he's that, like he is making an aggressive statement right now. I go, well, it looks like he's smiling. Nah, no, nah, because you That's can right. see the and so. Uh, it's that I am so endlessly fascinated by that as a, as a field of study because I it, particularly as a comedian you 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 do get some you do learn how to read a room you know when the energy and you know how to mm-hmm. push and pull but but on an interpersonal level it'd be really really interesting so th- yeah. there's more of this in your book I assume yeah there is and I talk about it a little more but you know if you, if you watch Bar Rescue the firehouse episode. Mm. With Jack's fire department was the most intense moment of reaction management for me. There was a scene behind the bar where I was screaming at Jimmy, and he was right in front of me. And this is one big dude, and this guy could flatten me in a heartbeat. And I am in front of a hundred people insulting the fuck out of this guy, yeah. a Queens, Queens, Sunnyside Queens, a- and he is about to belt me in the mouth. 
But if I don't stay with this, I am not going to change him. Mm -hmm. So I can't give up. So I'm watching his eyes, and I'm watching his pupils, <laughs> and they're going to dilate before he hits me. <laughs> and for a second, a split second, I started to lose him. And I got him back again, and his arms were hanging at his side. And I grabbed his wrist for a second, tightly. And in that second, I took control of it, and his pupils went back down again. And that was the closest I ever came to being hit in bar rescue, and I knew it every second. Wow. I knew how close to the line I was. I knew I was at the line, and I knew exactly when to pull off. And that was one of the most intense scenes in bar rescue yeah. to me ever. And it was all eye to eye, Chris. Yeah. You know, and it, there was nothing else in that room. But his eyes and mine. <laughs> and then maybe, hopefully, in the end, he understood, like, I'm doing... Oh, I got my hug in the end, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really... I mean, if, if you really... And they respect me for that, in the end. So, it, you know, I think on the surface, people are like, oh, it's a show, and it's a guy, and he goes in, and he but you, But because it seems like you so passionately really do care about the process and... and, and Helping people not essentially get out of their own way and not make dumb mistakes. It sounds like you really give a shit about when you go in there because these people are asking for help and you, as long as they listen to you, you can help them. Their last chance, man. I mean, they're, they're going to close in two weeks. You hear them say it. They're in debt hundreds of thousands of dollars. They have children. You know, parents' retirements are on the line. Grandparents. This is serious. These are human lives on the line. I take it fucking seriously. And what's the most common? Is it is it that people rush into the bar business without really understanding what they're doing and then like, oh, uh, a year later, we're all completely fucked? Yeah, they jump into it for social reasons. Right. I was saying to Matt earlier, it's yeah. like if you were into drugs, don't become a pharmacist. You right, know? right. <laughs> Probably not the best <laughs> idea. <laughs> How many, uh, uh, do you, did you have specific questions about the show? That you, have uh, you, have what do you, you think of it, have Matt? You, did the reality of it surprise you? Yes, I will say that. So, Oh, was Jordan not coming? Jordan, well, he had to go back to the office, but we were talking a little bit beforehand. Okay, okay. But uh, Jordan Morris and I went down to, to help out John. We did some recon for him. And I will say that I was, uh, we are both extraordinarily surprised at how real everything you're seeing on television is to the to the point where he is outside the bar in the suburban like it's like all the things that even in my head knowing television production I was like oh well they're just going to drop that in later and they'll go shoot it 40 miles away uh, you know pick it up later uh it was happening right outside he was watching us while we were in the bar uh, nothing set up. I mean, you know, they just say, "Okay, go in and order drinks and just be yourselves and sit at the bar, and we'll watch." If you like it, act that way. If you don't like it, act that yeah. way. Yeah, right. And uh, that's what we did, and and it was amazing. And then John fucking bursts in the bar, <laughs> and it's the happiest moment of my life because John Taffer is standing twenty feet away, yelling at a shitty bartender, <laughs> and uh, Jordan and I are just like two kids at Christmas, like going. Oh my god, it's really happening, and it's like, and he's just on point, and it's there, and it's all happening. And I was like, so I was genuinely surprised. And the carpentry tent is outside the bar because they gotta fucking get going on building that as soon as John comes up with the concept. And I'm like, oh holy fuck, you guys do this in five days. It's not like, but can you change someone's life in five days? Because because no, but you can change their business. You can change their business, <laughs> but you still can't change the the the, the fundamental essence of a human being I and in the way that they know. make decisions. If you're aware, that's of, why I'm so yeah. heavy. Yeah. <laughs> That's Chris. why I'm so heavy. Yeah. I mean, the fact is, there's a method. I'm going to start with pride. Sure. I want to appeal to your pride. You want to be successful. You want to have money. If that doesn't work, I'm going to go to fear. Mm -hmm. What happens when you lose your fucking house? What happens when this business closes? What are you going to do then? That doesn't work. Then I'll work to your family. Pictures sure. of your kids, pictures of your mother, whatever. So you're, 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 you're ghosts work, of Christmas futuring them. I am. If that doesn't work, then it's boot camp time, man. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, because you believe you're right. So I have to make you doubt yourself. That's what I must accomplish. But how do these people think they're right when their businesses are failing? That's a good they're question. If they were mental giants, I wouldn't be there in the first place in many cases. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is they're not great decision makers. Right. So that's why I'm there. So, you know, I have to make you doubt yourself just a little bit for a second. Mm -hmm. And your brain cracks open and then I walk in. So my view on it with Bar Rescue and the reason why I'm so aggressive is if I say, don't do this, do that, don't do that, do this, they're going to fucking do it again anyway. Mm -hmm. But I got to change the way you think. And if I can change the way you think, then I'll change what you do. 
and there's independent websites to track our success. And yeah. we're tracking it about, what, 80% success factor now. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. yeah. Well, go, look at fucking, go look at Kitchen Nightmares. It's at like 12. It's like it's, the percentage difference is amazing. Yeah, we track it close to 80, 75% if I'm wrong, Chris. But, you know, we're, we're really up there in, in, in our success factor because it's so fucking real to me, man. The cameras disappear. What did you, when you went into the bar uh-huh. and you ordered, what was the, what was the problem with the bar? There were plenty of problems with the bar, Chris. <laughs> Tell them the big problem, Matt. <laughs> as, as a student of John Taffer, what, is your, what was your initial... Chris, I got to tell you... to report back your recon. Tell me problem, everything they're doing the wrong. The biggest right? problem with this bar was a ghost. Okay. It's All fucking right. haunted, man. All right. That was literally the problem with this bar. It was a haunted bar. Now, what if I am skeptical about there, there being a ghost in the bar? Well, I think you just tune in to Bar Rescue and find out what they find out. But also, I'll say the drinks were shitty. Yep. Uh, the bartender was uh, a little loopy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people around weren't uh, terribly enjoyable either. Uh, uh, the lighting was awful. Uh, the carpet was dirty. Uh, bar was sticky. Smelled bad. Um, the uh, pores weren't good at all. You were uh, the best looking guy in the room. <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> but, no. I'll say yes. I was better looking than Jordan. Is there something, though, about... I mean, I guess maybe it has to be a little more engineered, but there is something about the, about a divey bar that can be attractive. So oh, no what's question. The, what's yeah, if it's line, done right. But what's the line between, oh, this place is cool because it's kind of shitty, and oh, this place is just shitty? There, how do you define hipness? It's really hard. Mm-hmm. How do you make something hip? I mean, I'm on the Nerdist talking hip. Yes. The Nerdist is about as hip as you get. I... And, and that's, and, 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 you know, but that's what's unique about it. How did the Nerdist become hip? Me. You can't define that. <laughs> Jonah. You can't, you, Jonah. You can't define that, Jonah. <laughs> I mean, you so, you know, you put all the elements together. You put the pieces together in the bar business, sexiness, you know, intimacy, warmth. Mm-hmm. You put all these elements together, and at the end of the day, it's the people that make it cool. So that's seeding. Mm-hmm. So if I seed the room with the right people, then its reputation is set in stone by the people that are there. Mm-hmm. What makes a dive bar cool? Cool people in it. Right. So I seed the room, and I can change the whole future of the bar. Oh, wow. So you basically, there, you, there, are, there are times when you've actually corralled a crowd and be like go in there oh more than that I'll, I'll give 300 girls gift cards oh wow mm. I'll give them money to go in and spend the first four days hanging out there I mean I will seed the room if I need jackets and ties I will pay people to go in it's no different than seat fillers in an awards yeah. show what's yeah. your favorite kind of uh, what's your favorite kind of room to put together Ah, that's a great question. I love bars. Mm-hmm. You know, just cool bars where we hang out, you know, yeah. uh, talk, interact together. You know, that to me is what's great. You know, the second public building ever built in America was a bar. <laughs> First was a church. <laughs> they were called public houses back then. Mm-hmm. And there were no city centers. There were no town mm-hmm. halls. There were no hotel meeting rooms. So all of our laws were created in bars. The marriages were created in bars. The corporations were formed in bars. It's the fiber of America. But bars then weren't about drinking. They were about an environment. Sure. You know, they were centerpiece of the community. And bars back then, pubs would have little walls in them called snugs. Oh, yeah. And snugs were between tables. And we did that in the Packies episode of Bar Rescue was so a priest could be sitting at one table as a bunch of rowdy guys was sitting at another and there was a little wall in between them (laughs) so that everybody could go to the pub and it was inclusive, not exclusive. Right. It's it's the fiber of America. Well, and you're also talking about a a broader idea that when, you know, I I, I have meetings with people all the time and they want to, like, oh, how do we advertise our thing? And I go, well, that's the wrong question. You should be talking about how to build your community. Because that's that's you're 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 in the community building. You can't just advertise shit to people that they don't know or give a fuck about. Like you have to, of course. you have to unite people and show them that you that you're listening and that you care. And that, I mean, and you're just talking about a, a very real world uh, and much older um, uh, expression of that. And you know, to me, reactions carries through to everything. You don't do a radio podcast, or you do a re- you create reactions. You do it through the podcast. Mm. 
your product isn't the podcast. Your product is the reactions that you achieve through it. <laughs> right? I guess that's very true. If you don't achieve the reactions, you have no podcast. That's right. I don't sell food and beverages. I sell reactions. I achieve it through food and beverage. I don't play music. I play reactions. I achieve it through music. I understand that the ultimate product that I sell is a human reaction. That's a great... And everything that I do is to achieve that reaction. That's why you're successful is you guys create great reactions in people that relate to them. They like it. They smile. They have emotional reactions. The more reactions you create, the more fucking money you'll make. That's the world. <laughs> He's a That's genius. reaction management in its essence. Everything. And when people say, I market for a living. No, you don't. You create reactions. You achieve it through marketing. Because if the marketing doesn't create a reaction, it sucks. Right. Yeah, yeah. And if you put a plate on the table and you don't sit up and react to it, it sucks. Right. And when you take a bite, if you don't react to it, it sucks. Right. So let's understand what business we're in. We are in the business of human reactions. And he or she who achieves the best reaction fucking wins, man. End of story. So you're wow. saying it's, it's better to be That's polarizing great. than neutralizing. In a sense, sometimes, you bet. Yeah. Because you can get noticed that way. Sure. I mean, I, I've never... I, I'm, I'm not someone who subscribes to the idea of like, all press is good press. Like, I think... Uh, I think good press is good press. I'm with you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't love the turtleneck tweets either, you know? <laughs> so or the eyes popping out of my head tweets. How, how, has, uh, how has social media, how did that start to change? When did you start noticing the, the way that people are interacting uh, you know, on smartphones, online, and social media in, in, in uh, relation to your business? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've actually, um, being on TV, I don't make any more money than I used to. So my business was vibrant, and my days were full, mm. and my calendars were full. So being on TV has made me not do the other things that I used to do. Right. So my income isn't greater, but my reach is far greater. Of course. So, you know, uh, uh, it's astonishing to me that I'm a celebrity. <laughs> you know, it's astonishing to me that, you know, that I'm famous and, and that people, uh, uh, you know, will tweet and communicate with me. And, you know, on my birthday, I got thousands and thousands of messages. I mean, that's really heartwarming that somebody would take the time to write a note to me and that I can connect or inspire. Sure. And I get three, four hundred emails a month from bars around the country that say, you know, wow. you inspired me, you helped me. You it's fucking cool. So I have been given a unique platform where I can actually inspire and, and help people. And most reality stars we laugh are going to go to hell. <laughs> I, I might actually make it to heaven. <laughs> I'm actually doing good stuff. You might make it to heaven and go, all right, that's dirty. You need to yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah, well, this is no fucking entry. Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing here? I expected big fucking gates yeah. and stuff. <laughs> Doorman, no velvet rope. Doorman's got to go. Right. That no, red carpet? What helpful. the fuck? Yeah. yeah. What's that guy's name, Pete? This guy's yeah. a piece of shit. Tom you got to get rid of him. Shave his beard. Yeah, shave, shave his beard. He's scaring off the kids. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but Jesus, I'm, I want to see 200 women in here by tomorrow. <laughs> so I got to tell you, I had a moment with Matt and Jordan that was funny. <laughs> I'm standing behind the bar screaming and yelling at this owner who's blaming his failure on a ghost. Sure. <laughs> and for a moment, I look out across the bar. It's the greatest episode and, ever. And, and Chris, so while I'm doing this, for a split second, I look across the bar, and there's about 60 customers in the bar, and they're all sitting there with their mouths hanging open. They can't believe what they're seeing. They're sitting there. And then Matt and Jordan are sitting on their bar stools, crying with laughter. Oh. <laughs> They're falling off the chairs. They cannot contain themselves. I mean, I'm convinced he pissed in his pants. Everybody else is in horror. They are loving every second of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was the greatest thing ever. Although, it was like, it was like watching a live, re a live, you're watching live bar rescue. It was like, it was like if I ever got to go to a taping of Frasier, it would have been the greatest thing yeah. ever. But this is my next best thing is this bar rescue. But I got to ask uh, the bar, did you, did you put a butt funnel in? No butt funnel. Oh, butt man. funnels always go with dance floors. Okay. What's a butt funnel? Oh, please, oh. John. He invented. You're looking at the man who invented the butt funnel. Please. A butt funnel <laughs> is an entrance to a dance floor that's about 28 to 30 inches wide. Okay. So when you go through it, you got to rub up against a person who's also <laughs> going through. Oh, okay. It. So nice looking girl, you're approaching the butt funnel. Yep. You have a choice to make: front to front, or back to back, <laughs> or front to back. Sure. So if you decide front to front and enter the butt funnel and she spins, you're now front to back. Right. Right? Hence, 
the butt funnel. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So it's either the breast funnel, the butt funnel, but what it does is it forces people to be close, rub up against each other, eye contact, interaction. Before you know it, they're buying breakfast. <laughs> this man once built a double butt funnel. It was <laughs> and a double deep butt funnel. Oh man, was that a treat? <laughs> no, you can't do it. It's too much. I'm I'm gonna double butt funnel. <laughs> Is it ha- has uh, has now that everyone has a voice? You know, everyone has Yelp, and everyone has uh, a million different ways to to rate, talk about word of mouth. Obviously, it's more important than ever. Um, so is that does that feel like any more responsibility or does it just feel like no it's just a natural extension of the thing that we were already doing if, if the place is good that's all going to shake out fine or do you focus on that too uh, you know, it creates accountability which is fucking cool right you know you have accountability you know how many downloads you get right your downloads go down you got a freaking problem you know of course you know in the past a lot of bars and restaurants operated without accountability now when you have a bad experience you post it you say it you put it out there it's actually good yeah and what it does is it holds them accountable to some standard and it'll allows you to be informed as a consumer. So I think it's had a really positive effect on the industry. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it is interesting, too, just like how much even I just will look at Yelp before I go somewhere, just to sort of like see. Or like if I'm in a town I don't know, I'll always well, yeah. pull up I Yelp. Mean, when we're out of town, of course. Yeah. You, you know, you I, I will always... I go, I'm looking for a breakfast place. I sort by rating. And you do this kind of little math in your head where you go, well... It has four stars, but only ten reviews. This one has three and a half stars, yeah. but it's got you know a thousand reviews yeah. and so the ten reviews with the owner's family. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> and exactly. you also like I do the thing now too, where I go where I have the uh, L.A. market of Yelp in my head versus the New York market. Like a four star in New York would be like a seven star in Los Angeles, <laughs> yes. maybe an eight. Yeah, <laughs> like it's it's just like New York is so much more. I don't know, free to voice their opinion, and you have to be really good in New York to get a great Yelp rating. So, like, when, so when you're yeah. a- out in New York and you are looking and all around you is just three stars, you're fucking, I'm going to be hungry. I'm not hey, We're New Yorkers. We're going to tell you to go fuck yourself. Well, not only that, but, but in New York, <laughs> in Newark, you have so many more immediate options. In L.A., you have to get in your car. It's very <laughs> intentional. I mean, there's you four pizza park. places on every block. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's, they're, they're, and all of them are called Rays. Yeah. What is going on? <laughs> original Rays, Rays, original, the Rays, original, original, the Rays. <laughs> there's seven. I looked it up. You uh, yeah. <laughs> What's is, yeah. is is there a city that is not a good place to run a bar in, or do you feel like no? In any community, you can figure it out. You know, it's funny. Years ago, uh, uh, I I did a big venue in Nashville, and when I'm doing my market research, I'm with the uh, entertainment writer of the Tennessean newspaper, mm-hmm. who says to me, "John, you're nuts. People don't drink here. This is the Bible Belt. You're not going to do big money in the bar business here." So I go into the databases, and I do research on alcohol consumption. And the alcohol consumption in Nashville, Tennessee at the time was 11.3% higher than a national average. Well, somebody's fucking drinking. Right. (laughs) Right. So what they say and what they do are often very different. Of course. Uh, I remember when the whole meat thing broke out. Nobody, oh, don't eat meat, don't eat meat. Meat sales went up during that time period. What we say and what we do are different. And my job is to sort it out. I don't want you to do what you say you're going to do. I need you to actually do it. Yeah. So I have to focus on the reality of moving bodies, butts and seats, uh-huh. and causing people to actually act. Uh, and that's a challenge. Do you have, of, of the episodes of Bar Rescue that have aired, do you have a favorite remodel? Like, do you have one that you were like, well, we fucking nailed that? There's actually a few. 38th Floor is one of my favorites. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that concept. And that room was really thin. So I put a bunch of large video monitors vertically on the wall, put columns between it, and made them look like the windows of an office building, named the bar the 38th floor, put in a webcam system so you're looking down from the 38th floor downtown San Francisco. (laughs) Oh, that's right. And the name of the bar was the 38th floor, and you walked through an elevator. To get to oh, it, yeah, but it's just—I thought it's that just was a cool level, concept, that and that concept we created in ten minutes after recon that it's night. Amazing. We were in trouble on that one. You know, Jack's Firehouse I thought was yeah. a great one. When we took a fire truck, we cut it up, we put the front behind the bar, and we used pieces of the fire truck all over the. But I'm proud of all of them, really. Yeah. Matt. You know, yeah. I don't think there's a bad one in a lot. Wow. So you are you? But you must be hard on yourself. I mean, you couldn't be. You couldn't achieve the level that you're at if you weren't kind of hard on yourself. Oh no, sometimes. there's not ever a time that I don't walk out that I say, gee, I could have. Maybe I should have. But you know, with Bar Rescue, and here's the insider look, I do recon. At the end of recon, we turn the cameras off. You know this, Matt. Mm -hmm. We take the employees out of the building. I go in. I design the bar that night. Mm -hmm. The next day, I'm signing off on bar stools, wallpapers, colors. We're designing the bar day two. 
By the end of the second day, morning of the third day, I have to have the logos signed off on because I got to have the sign company make the signs. I got to have the exterior plan done. I got to have the furniture ordered and all the interior done. The recipes, the menus, the graphics, everything has to be done by the morning of day three. At the night of day three, at nine o'clock at night, I turn it over to my construction team. They give it back to me 36 hours later. Uh-huh. You know that, uh-huh. Matt. Yeah. You were there. It happens. And we do it every week. So I have about an hour to come up with a concept, design a bar, do all the elements, and now I've done it 92 times. Shit. And every time I say to myself, i got to be out of these fucking ideas. How am I going to come up with the 93rd? <laughs> yeah. But we walk in, and, and you know, there's always something, a, a beam across the building, a wall, something about it that gives me a, what I call a creative thread. Sure. One idea that I can carry through to the walls, the looks, the logos. And what makes a great bar is that one thread. That pulls all the elements together, and you don't have you don't really have time to waste second guessing yourself. So you have to no. just make quick decisions. No, I'll be cocky. I think my first guess is better than a lot of other people's <laughs> second guess when it comes to the bar business. Yeah, <laughs> I'm one cocky son of a bitch, huh? Yeah, but you know what? You back it up with bar science. I got to ask you though, if there's a thing I've been upset about at bars lately. Some of my favorite kind of divey bars, a place I just go and get drinks with with friends. Um, every bar is seemingly trying to figure out the whole mixology thing. Yes. And so now every bar has their own little mi- like mixed drink menu where it it's basically a, a you know a science uh, project. Snobbery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, you know everyone, it's uh, and so. Uh, the wait time for drinks is now extending at bars when they're never used to. You just yeah. and like uh, it's it's making me furious. It's well, like to wait for just a beer. Mint. They got to spank the mint. <laughs> <laughs> they got to wait Don't a second and a half much. between each. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Exactly. You know, here's what's interesting. So let's say it takes thirty seconds to make a cocktail, mm-hmm. but in a mixology bar, it takes let's say two minutes to make the cocktail. Mm-hmm. So my production is now twenty five percent. Of what it was. Mm-hmm. Mm. So if I don't charge 300% more for that same drink, I'm going to lose money. Oh, wow. Yeah. You with me? That makes so much sense. Yeah, because you I'll can, generate only, less you can dollars. only turn around so many in a night. Yeah. And at the end of the day, bars are about sales per foot. Oh, wow. Right? That's the ultimate measurement. So my job is to create revenue, dollars per foot. Yeah. And to do that, i got to produce production. Right. And I got to get product out. So a lot of these mixology bars are screwing themselves. Don't do something that takes three times longer unless you can charge three times the price. Right. The economics don't work. Yeah. And then you get frustrated, say, fuck it. I'll spank my own mint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's been so many bars that like everyone, like all my friends will be like, if only they had like a beer line. Like, you know, just like you go to this guy and he just pours you your drink yeah. right away. Well, that's why we do a lot of shot tubs and things. We'll put girls in beer tubs and such. We'll put them right by the front door. Yeah. So you get it in your hand right away. We take the stress off the bar. Yeah. yeah, yeah you yeah. sort of reminded me the difference. I remember right, like right around the time Chipotle launched, Baja Fresh was also kind of launching mm-hmm. around around the same time. No microwaves at Baja Fresh. Well, but, but the fresh. but the and I, I read I read an article about and it's very similar to what you're it's saying. It's all pre-microwaved. But I, read, I read an article about why like why Chipotle took off and why Baja Fresh and part of it was that. You know, Chipotle was a simple one, two, three menu, and Baja Fresh was kind of a confusing. People didn't really know what they were ordering or getting, and so they were spending more time, at, you know, like trying to figure out, like, oh, I mean, I guess that Chipotle's just like, do you want this, this, or this? We'll make it right here on the line as you go down. Yeah, and that it, that there was that it was the it was the efficiency and the simplicity that people are, uh, you know, people, how would you like these three ingredients? Well, that's I don't want to uh, answer thirty fucking yeah, questions. People, just give me my goddamn sandwich. Yeah. People think <laughs> yeah, they want. Yeah, exactly. People think they want. There's a weird balance between people. People think they want choice, but when you give them too much choice, they become overwhelmed and yes. stressed because yes. they don't want to. They spend their whole lives they're make, having to make decisions, yeah. and they just don't want to have to make big decisions all yeah. the time. And you know, it's fascinating when you look at what's happening in the restaurant world today. McDonald's sales, you know, drop two to four percent every month. Mm. I mean, they have a serious crisis. That company and all millennials are moving to fast casual. Chipotle, sure, Panera, you know all of those brands, and they're spending about ten dollars at fast casual, as they used to spend five dollars at fast food. Right. So they're spending twice the price, and you know marketers like me analyze this and say why, and it's story. For example, mm. organic, fresh, locally produced. Right. Well, you can food s- with integrity. Yeah. yeah. All of these fast casuals have a story that millennials relate to. Right. And then you look at another brand in some of the fast food restaurants, they can't say any of that. No organic, no fresh, no special blends, no this. So marketing of restaurants today is all about story. Yeah. And having something that you connect with. And that's why those brands are doing so well. Huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it 
story is the most important thing for anything today because there's so many there are limitless choices for everything at all times and that's what and so then i think people naturally go oh well i relate to that because that i'm my personality is attached to that as opposed to just a big you know like a big kind of a sterile chain or people like oh i don't understand that because that's not because we are people are conditioned now uh because the entire internet will just algorithmically tell people, like, here's what you already like. People expect that everything should be a personal experience for them. Right. Mm. You know, uh, uh, yes. Uh, and, you know, it, we're going through a bit of a marketing revolution right now. When we look at the fact that legacy brands, and I don't want to beat on any one company mm. like McDonald's and stuff, millennials have no loyalty to these brands. Right. Yeah. They'll jump on a new brand like Shake Shack in a heartbeat. Okay. <laughs> so the yeah. fact that you're an old brand of 50 years means fucking nothing anymore. Right. It's what are you going to do for me today? Right. What's yeah. the story today? That's a big shift in the whole marketing universe because legacy brands don't mean anything Yeah, it's anymore. no more of like, it's like we've been serving burgers since uh, 1955. Like, no fuck matter. yourself, old yeah, man. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go to the guy who just yeah. started yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's one big thing. And then, of course, the whole premise of the phone, you know, and mobile. Yeah. And the fact that you can't advertise the way you used to anymore. I can't communicate with people the way I used to anymore. You know, millennials look at their phones up to about 230 times a day. How do we get on those phones? You know, you guys have figured that out. Obviously, I can, I can listen to you on my <laughs> phone all the time. But, you know, how do we get advertising messaging on phones? And how do we connect with people now? We are literally going through a revolution now. Sure. And it's a real challenge for, the, you know, the marketing professionals. It is that. because a lot of it is, you know, like a traditional media is a very one-sided conversation because right. they had the luxury of only having a, a, only a couple of outlets. Yeah. And so people, if you want entertainment, you had to watch those outlets. And now... There, there's like so many there's too many options like yeah. there's a- everywhere everywhere so yeah. you know now it is like that you do have to have a conversation with people because you have to engage them on a personal level do you, you got to connect do you think back that, like, to reaction management yeah that's exactly right <laughs> exactly right copyright uh, do you think that like the way we all sort of look at millennials is like these people that will just that are sort of into the screen experience versus an actual experience do you think that that will sort of affect you know, them maybe I not worry. wanting to go out. Well, I worry about two things. Yeah. You know, when I was younger, we didn't have this stuff. Mm. So we looked in each other's eyes. Human interaction was important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel your presence. You sure. feel mine. There's a connection when we're in a room together. We don't feel that through a screen. No. So what's happened is today more communication happens digitally than mm. interpersonally. And that worries me. I'm in the business of interpersonal relationships. Sure. Right. I don't want people ordering their food and beverages on a tablet. I want them looking into somebody's eyes. Right. I'm scared that if a tablet gets in the middle of my customers and my employees, that the whole industry is going to disappear. Because right. I don't sell drinks. I don't sell food. I sell social interaction. Sure. Yeah. So I'm worried that yeah. you know we're growing up with less and less of that, Matt. Right. And, and that people are not going to be as interactively sensitive or, or capable. So there, do you? So then, do you start? Um, do you start playing into that? Do you go? Well, the trend seems to be that people are interacting with their devices, so we need to find ways to do that. Or do you go? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to force people to have these types of personal experiences because on some level, human beings need that, and will be an alternative to what you know, like what people are doing with their faces in their phones. Yeah, you know that that's a really astute question, and it's a challenge for me all the time. What technologies do I embrace? And what technologies do I fear? Mm -hmm. Mm. And, you know, which technologies will I not embrace? Absolutely. You know, I believe hell will freeze over before I put a tablet between a server, a bartender, and a customer. That just violates every premise that I know. You know, if I wasn't looking in your eyes and in this room together, you and I would never have the relationship we have now. And the bar business is is about relationships. Yeah. Not interaction. Relationships. Connections. Cheers is so popular. Cheers is the best. Guys, cheers, Fraser. If, well, that, that's around. a good point. We bring up cheers. Is that there was I used a to di- go to Fraser all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Kelsey was a friend of mine. I used to go sit and watch. John Taffer's the greatest. His mother, being alive. His mother used to go to every set. That's and, you know, Kelsey was amazing. When you go to Fraser, every time Kelsey walked out on stage, he had this presence that was just remarkable. He was really something. That's right. What would you have changed about the Cheers bar? I would have made him collect some fucking money. <laughs> And I got to tell you, you know, if Norm sat at the end of that bar, one beer would not have gotten him two hours of sitting there. Oh, fuck. I mean, think about it. They never made money. I wrote a a thing for the Nerdist YouTube channel that we never ended up making, which was you going to rescue the Maz Eisley Cantina from Star Wars. (laughs) You know, there's a Facebook page for that. 
Is there really? somebody created a Facebook page to have I, me do this? And I, I mentioned it. I must have meant it, but it was about, maybe you caused about it two years ago. We wrote, had the cantina set. Yeah, built. we had the cantina set built, and I was like, we were trying to figure out uses for it, and I was like, fucking John Taffer should rescue the bar and like, where's the out, set? Flip we, out we about them. To, like, we sold it to StarWars.com. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, but I wanted to like flip out about them not serving droids and like that's half your customer base <laughs> out the door. <laughs> and I was gonna. You we got gonna, this guy uh, shooting that guy over there. <laughs> <laughs> and the just fuck screaming. this band no one can understand a uh, fucking word you got a dead green guy in the corner <laughs> clean up the bodies number one rule that was one of my dreams but it never uh, panned out but you know what it, the idea exists and if anyone wants to rebuild hope, that set yeah I'll still hope I'm, uh, I'm being told you have a hard out because are you have a hard, where, 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 where yeah. are you guys off to today I'm off actually uh, uh, to Lance Bass Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Oh, well, well uh, uh, do you want to plug? Do you want to, obviously, you want to plug Barbara's? Do you want to plug your no, book? No, I'm doing a book signing tonight at Barnes & Noble at the Grove. Oh, a DVD fun. signing. You know, the first ever Bar Rescue DVD came out. Nice. And Blu-ray or just DVD? Rescues. Just What's DVD. What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> You're not John Taffer. You can't yell at people. I got to shut them down, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we normally do season one, season two, season three. These are my toughest rescues from all okay. three seasons. So it's a really cool DVD. Awesome. So I'm doing a signing tonight at Barnes & Noble. Yeah. And my app, I'm really proud to say, Bar HQ is one of the highest downloaded B2B apps in the world. I put together an app for free for the bar business. Yeah. It does the scheduling for them, all their social media management. They pull 60 Shit. promotions down for free. Push a button, the promotions go to their social channels, go to their employees' channels. And it's you know sort of my gift to the bar. Uh, hey, oh, yeah, yeah, know. my friends, uh, Roberta's in Brooklyn. They use that for their Yeah, it's schedule. called yeah. Bar HQ, yeah, and, yeah. and you know, I love it. So it's available for free for download, and anybody who's wow. in a bar business that doesn't have it, it's crazy. That's fantastic. Maybe one of these days we'll try to pin you down and get you to tell us, like, here's how to get more people to come out to your live shows. <laughs> like, that, would be a, that would be a nice. I'm gonna, I'm I smell a nerdist bar. What? Somewhere. See what I'm saying? Matt would have to run it. I don't drink, so I don't. I don't which care. probably actually make me the perfect bar runner because I don't. I'm never gonna. You said you're the perfect guy. Yeah, you and hey, me, buddy. Yeah. You know who ran Cheers? Sam Malone. Sam Malone. He didn't totally drink. Sober. He was addicted to fucking ladies a lot, though. Hey, you know what? You're he was a relief pitcher. Yeah. Pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> John Taffer, it was a pleasure. Great. Thank you so much My for being pleasure. here. Really nice to meet you. Same here, buddy. Let's we'll do it again soon. Please yeah. and uh, enjoy your burrito. <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.